I would like to read a couple of verses from a psalm that was, was one of the songs that the Israelites sang as they ascended the hill of Mount Zion to go to worship the Lord. In Psalm 123, we read these words, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious to us. Lord, as we turn to you in prayer, we acknowledge that you are gracious to us each and every day. And so our eyes are upon you. You are our heavenly Father. Jesus is our elder brother as well as our Lord. And so our eyes are fixed upon you each and every day, knowing that it is from you that our help comes, that our hope comes, that our sense of purpose is derived. And Lord, as we come before you this morning, we want to acknowledge you, first of all, as our Lord and King, as our teacher, as the one who cares more about us than anyone else in this universe and knows us better than anyone else, even than we do ourselves. And so, Lord, we put ourselves in your hands because we trust you. And we pray that you will be mightily present with us here during this time. I pray for those members of our class which are away, who are away traveling at this time, that you will keep your hand of protection and blessing upon them and bring them safely back to us. And Lord, I pray that the proclamation of your word will go forth with strength. We're told in the word that uh, the message of God is not, will not return void as it's proclaimed, as the word of God is actually proclaimed. And so we trust that it will not be void in our hearts, but will be truth by which we will live. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn back to 1 Samuel, the 22nd chapter. We'll begin the 22nd chapter today. I'd like to read the first five verses to begin with. So David departed from there. There, of course, being uh, Gath, where he had fled and acted like a madman after he discovered that they, had, that they knew who he was. So David departed from there, from Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. Then he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. When David fled from Gath, he didn't flee very far. Gath, as I mentioned to you before, is this is the site that's believed to be Gath. I, I think I mentioned to you that if you go to that part of Israel in what's known as the Shephelah, which is sort of the, the hill country before, uh, the, uh, sort of the hill and valley region of low hills before you get to the main high country, there are a series of tells in there. A tell is uh, an Arabic word for mound, and these are sites of ancient cities. And one of the known cities is called Maresha. 
And from the top of Maresha, as you look uh, off in the distance, you can see what most believe to be the Tell of Gath, which is this, uh, this one right here. Uh, from there, he fled to Adullam, and you see that's right here. Uh, there's a cave there, and uh, this cave is the cave to which David fled at this particular time. It's located right up as you begin to ascend the actual hill country of Judah to go up into the mountainous area where you find Jerusalem and, and Bethlehem and uh, Hebron and those places. What's interesting is that the cave of Adullam is only four miles from where David actually slew Goliath in the Valley of Elah. So these places are so close together. That's why when you travel in, in the Near East, you get in the bus to go to the next site and you hardly get settled in your seat before they stop and you got to get back out of the bus again or, or you get to get out of the bus again. And which, which is very amazing, I think, for us who live on the western side of the United States where it's a thousand miles between anything, it seems like. I don't know if you've had this experience that I've had, but after driving a lot in the United States and you go over and if you drive in Europe, everything there is in kilometers. Your, your odometer is in kilometers. <laughs> and you look at the sign, it says 350 kilometers. You think, oh man, it's going to take me all day. And you get going there and you're watching your, the old odometer is going click, 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 click. And the old kilometers are just rolling off because on the highways over there, of course, you can travel at faster speeds than most of us drive here in, <laughs> in, uh, in California or out in the West. They actually call them clicks over there. They call them clicks. 40 clicks, 40 clicks. 40 clicks. That's about the way it seems like as they, as they click up. So it, it doesn't, it goes by quickly compared to what we're most used to here. Uh, David has fled to the cave at Adullam. And, and he took with him the, the few men that were with him. And somehow word now got out. Now he's hiding, right? This is a hiding place. And yet word somehow got out to his family. Uh, that he was hiding there. I, I think the reason the word got out was that he sent word <laughs> to his folks. Uh, this is where I am, and if you wish to come and be with me, you're welcome to do that. And so I think he sent a messenger, primarily because he, you know, David was a smart man, and he knew that if he was hiding, and yet Saul knew where his folks were and where his brothers were, Saul could think, I've got to get vengeance on David by striking his family, or I will hold them hostage until David surrenders himself to me. David knew that that could be a, a distinct possibility, so David decided that his family should stay with him so that they would be in safekeeping. Those of you who are familiar with history know that this has happened many times in history. It was very common for the Roman emperors to hold a regional provincial governor or king's family or some member of the family hostage in Rome to guarantee the good behavior of that provincial governor of that regional king. Back at the beginning of this, of last century now, at the end of the 19th, early part of the 20th century, there was a war called the Boer War that occurred from 1899 to 1902 that was fought in South Africa. And when the Boers, who were the native Dutch who lived in South Africa, rose up against the British who were encroaching upon them, the British captured the families of the Boers and put them in a concentration camp to try to force the Boers to stop fighting against them. So this, this is a common practice uh, through, through history. So you can understand why David was very concerned to protect his uh, family here. And it seems very probable that his brothers came to join him now, were his brothers willing to admit that this younger boy is, is now the, the superior to them, in, at least in his fame and in his fighting skill? Well, we don't know, but it, I have a feeling that his brothers actually joined the 400 men. 
and, and were part of the group that uh, were with David. And so David becomes a kind of Robin Hood in some ways. Not that he's out stealing from the rich and giving to the poor, but, but viewed as someone to whom the discontented could flee and find you know, a, a welcome and, and like people in existence. The men who were attracted to David are described in this particular passage. We're told that it included those who were in distress. Now the Hebrew word which is translated distress here uh, generally refers to someone who's, who's experiencing strong external pressures, pressures from the outside, not, not, not internal depression or something of that nature, but something from the outside that is bringing anguish and oppression into this person's life. So we're talking about some kind of social pressure, economic pressure, political pressure maybe, that causes the person to become discontent and to feel that uh, he is not a part of the community and so he becomes an outcast in a way. Debtors, we're told, were drawn to him. Debtors were drawn to him. That would, of course, in America today mean that David would draw a very large percentage of the population. <laughs> in, in those days, there was no such thing as debt relief. There was no such thing as bankruptcy. You couldn't declare bankruptcy and start all over again and start receiving credit cards again immediately from these nitwit companies. If you couldn't pay your debt, in those days, you lost everything. In fact, you might even lose your freedom. So debt was a very serious thing. Now, usually debt would be incurred if, for example, there was crop loss. Maybe a, a crop was lost bad. Like right now, you may know that Israel, that whole part of the world, is suffering from extreme drought. Uh, the Sea of Galilee has been pulled to the lowest level in, in recent history. Uh, the water aquifers from deep levels are being drained. There's, it's a very serious problem over there. And it's exacerbating the whole situation because Israel is reluctant to give the Palestinians any more than they absolutely have to of the water that's there. And so that, that's something to pray about. You know, last Sunday we, we focused uh, for a moment on praying for the peace of Jerusalem. And a, certainly a part of praying for the peace of Jerusalem is for God to intervene in crises uh, such as, as this. 3,000 years ago, there was no such thing as a bank. There was no such thing as a credit card, thankfully. And so debt was not something most people had, as opposed to us today in America, where the vast majority of America. I, I heard in the other day that the average American has $8,000 in credit card debt alone. The average American. I know some Americans who have more than that, <laughs> unfortunately. But if a person, for example, the breadwinner dies, suddenly the family is really in trouble. So, so when debt is incurred like that, often it's very difficult to get out of that debt. And so some would just simply flee from the debt, such as those that came to David. In addition, we're told that the discontented came. Literally, the Hebrew is bitter of soul. Those who were bitter of soul, uh, for whatever the reason might be, came to David. They viewed him as an outcast hero, a man after their own hearts. And, and so they they came to join him. How did they know where he was? You know, he didn't put out flyers on, on the trees saying, hey, I'm at the cave of Adullam. He was hiding in the cave of Adullam. But somehow through the underground grapevine, word got out. And so people came to David there at Adullam. This was a good experience for David, by the way. This was a very good experience for David. Because although David didn't come from a wealthy family, this gave him a chance to understand how many people in the country were hurting and how bad that hurt was. And so by hobnobbing with the down and out, 
One day when he would become king, this would give him understanding of the pain of those people. And one of the reasons why, you remember later on after he had had his affair with Bathsheba, the prophet came along and poked his finger in, in his nose and told him the story about uh, the guy, wealthy guy who went to the poor guy and demanded his lamb to feed the wealthy guy's guest, and David was enraged. This, this of course, comes at least part from this experience uh, that David had. So David became the leader of a rabble army of about 400 men. We don't know how many members of, the, of these men's these individuals' families also came to, to be a part of this, but certainly the 400 men, which for that time of, uh, in, in history was a fairly formidable force because except for large kingdoms, small kingdoms and, and tribes had very small standing armies, if any standing army. So a 400-man force would be a, a very definite threat. I think it's important for us to note that David did not raise an army to threaten Saul. David's job was not to threaten Saul. David wanted no harm to come to Saul from his hand because he has already developed the sense that Saul is God's anointed. It's God's problem to deal with and not his problem. He would not touch Saul personally. But the reason for the individuals was to secure his own safety. But there is no indication in this passage that David recruited any of these 400 men. He didn't send out individuals trying to get people. At least the passage doesn't indicate that. <coughs> but that these people came of their own accord to join with David, drawn to him because of his fame as a military commander who has been wrongly accused by his king. And most of these people who came were feeling wrongly accused in some way or another and thus knew the feeling. While David was in the cave at Adullam, in spite of the fact that 400 men gathered to him, he still felt like he was in a very, very difficult situation. We, we sometimes almost get the feeling uh, that, that David was uh, a man of, of invincibility, that he goes around slaying giants with a little rock, and that he was a mighty leader of troops and all of that. And sometimes we don't realize until we start reading the Psalms, of course, that he was a man who was afraid, a man who was very concerned for his future and saw enemies all around him, which were very real enemies, of course. And so many of the Psalms were penned by David, but one Psalm in particular uh, seems to have been written while David was in the cave at Adullam. It's the 142nd Psalm. Just, just picture David now, uh, hiding out in this cave. He's been uh, Saul has on three occasions tried to spear him. Uh, he has, in effect, a, uh, um, a bounty on his head. And so David says, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. You know, I've said this before, and I, and I think you know it, but sometimes it helps to repeat it so that we have a true sense of the fact that God cares for the very smallest of our needs. If you want to complain, complain to God. It doesn't do us much good to complain to each other. But if we complain to God, He understands. And God isn't going to upbraid us for complaining about the situation because He is there to hear our cry. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you did know my path and the way where I walk. They have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. 
There is no escape for me, no one who cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison. You know, you think about this. He's in a cave. Although he's voluntarily in that cave, it still seems like a prison to him because he cannot freely travel in the land because he knows he's a hunted man. Bring my soul out of prison so they may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Notice how he ends it. He gives his complaint to the Lord. He talks about all his problems, but he says, I know you will help me. So if, if you can just picture David here, now he's hiding in this cave here at the base of the hill country at Adullam. And on the trees around, there are wanted posters, so to speak, not really, but that's the way he felt as he hid there. And of course, 400 men, that gives him a little bit of comfort, but he still has to face the wrath of Saul who commands thousands of men. As I mentioned, Saul, uh, David knew that Saul might want to use David's parents. And so even though he had them with him at the cave of Adullam, he did not feel that that was secure enough of a place. So he decides to move his parents completely out of harm's way. As long as they're with him, if he gets involved in a pitched battle, his parents are going to still be in danger. So he's going to move them way out of the way so they will no longer be in any danger so he can go about his duties without fear on behalf of his parents. And so he decides, we read in the passage, to take his parents to Moab. <laughs> That's a foreign country, you know. Moab is over here. Moab is a land of, of people who are pagans and a, and a people, of course, who are cousins of the Israelites, but enemies of the Israelites. And yet David decides to take his parents to Moab and to see if the king of Moab will not harbor them if he will not grant them temporary asylum. And we think, well, maybe this is part of David's thinking. He's already gone to, get, to Gath, you know, the home of Goliath, carrying Goliath's sword, expecting to be welcomed there. So now he's going to go off to uh, Moab, which, of course, was a nation that cursed Israel. Remember, the king of Moab tried to get Balaam to curse Israel. Of course, this is a different king many centuries later. But nevertheless, the, the attitude is there. He knew, of course, that the Moabites hated Saul. Why did the Moabites hate Saul? Because Saul was organizing and unifying Israel. As long as Israel was disunified, as long as it was just tribal, why the Moabites had a chance to hit here and hit there without serious repercussions. But if Israel's unified, Israel is larger than Moab, both in area and in wealth and in population. And so he's, the, the Moabites are not happy with Saul. And if, if the Moabites help David, they understand that they're creating division in Israel. And if they're convening, creating division in Israel, they're weakening their enemy, they think. There's one other reason why. David might have thought that the Moabites would have welcomed his family. And that reason is because of Ruth. Right. His great-grandmother was Ruth the Moabites. And of course his father, that would be his father's grandmother. And so in effect they have Moabite blood in them. And so the king of Moab might take passion or compassion 
pity on, on him and listen to his story. And uh, so David goes to a place called Mizpah. That's not very helpful because there are many Mizpahs. Mizpah simply means watchtower, and, it, and that part of the world is full of watchtowers. If you ever go over there, almost every single vineyard had a watchtower and a stone tower. People went up to make sure nothing was eating the grapes. And so, obviously, this isn't uh, very helpful to us, but it's believed that this Mizpah was actually located in or at Kir Moab, or Kir Hereseth, as you see it here, which was the capital of Moab and where the king of Moab would have been in residence. And so David took his folks and his band of 400 men and whoever all were the hangers-on and traveled all the way to Moab to the capital here, which is located about 20 miles south of the Arnon. The Arnon is the main river here that flows into the east coast of the Dead Sea here. It flows out of the highlands here, the Transjordanian highlands. And of course, right now, there's hardly any water in it or any of the rivers over there because of the great drought that is occurring right now, but about 20 miles south along the King's Highway. There was a highway that traveled all along the highlands here called the King's Highway. We've talked about this back in earlier days of our study of the Old Testament, and as well as, of course, the Via Maris, which came in and went along the coast over here, and then the connectors across. Then there was a highlands route that went down through the major cities of the highlands of Ephraim and Judah. So there were three parallel roads, one in Transjordan, one in the highlands, of uh, Israel and then one on the coast and then connectors across so you had kind of a ladder network of, of roads that had been developed. How did David travel from the cave at Adullam here over to Kir Hareseth or Kir Moab? Did he go around the north end of the Dead Sea? Did he go around the south end of the Dead Sea? We don't know. The scripture doesn't say. All we know is in the cave of Adullam the next moment we find him over there in Kir uh, Moab. Uh, now, whichever way it goes, we're looking at at least 100 miles of journey, at least 100 miles of travel. Obviously, the safest route for him would have been to go around the southern end of the Dead Sea because Gibeah, the capital of Saul's kingdom, is right there. He could go this way, but that brings him very close to Gibeah. And I have a feeling he probably did go that way, simply because it's pretty, har pretty harsh down here. Whichever route he took, he was vulnerable, however, to discovery. You can't move 400 people through the landscape uh, secretly very well. And so they're going to be noted along the way, and, and certainly word would eventually get back to Saul. But God brought them through safely, and they arrived there without incident because the Scripture gives us no evidence of any incident along the way. God gave them favor in the eyes of the king of Moab. The king of Moab basically says, sure, leave your folks here. I'll be glad to watch out for them. David left the time open. How, how long were his folks going to be there? Well, as long as I am seeking God's guidance. He, he says specifically that he would like them to, reign, to, to remain in Moab until I know what the Lord will do for me. Until I know what the Lord will do for me. Which, of course, was a testimony to the king of Moab. I am trusting in Yahweh, God of Israel, to guide me. The next verse informs us that they remained there as long as David was in the stronghold. As long as David was in the stronghold. The word translated stronghold here uh, comes from the root Masad. That sound like anything you've heard of before? Masad? You've heard of Masada, right? 
that great fortified mountain peak, what comes directly from this word, it means high mountain stronghold, which is what Masada is. If you've ever seen Masada, it's a butte that just rises right up out of the Dead Sea. It's, uh, it has sheer cliffs on all sides that drop off. It has uh, a, a top on it which is relatively flat, fortified with walls all around the edges of it for all practical purposes, an invulnerable fortress. Of course, the Romans did eventually, uh, in the year 73, finally break in, but only after an immense effort to build a ramp up, to, you know, to kind of fill in the cliff and, on one side and, and get up there, which they eventually did. What this seems to indicate to us is David does not return to the cave of Adullam. He remains in Moab. Apparently, he found a, a crag somewhere which he could fortify, possibly one that overlooked the, the Dead Sea, and that's where he was going to remain for a period of time. He was in Moab, a foreign country, hiding from Saul. Was Saul likely to come? Well, he was fairly secure there. Saul would have to invade a foreign country to chase David. That's, in effect, declaring war on your neighbor. That could really make the consequences significant. So David felt relatively secure here. Was this what God wanted? Well, we don't know how long he was there in this particular stronghold. But God sent the prophet Gad to him. Gad. This is the first time we hear, hear of Gad, the, of the prophet Gad. We know of the tribe of Gad in Israel. But this is the first time we hear of the prophet Gad. Now, he probably was a member of Samuel's school of the prophets, one of those that was under Samuel's training. And now he is chosen by God, possibly through Samuel's uh, touch upon him. We, we don't know any of those details, but God sent Gad to, to David. And Gad came to, by the way, the word Gad means fortune, fortune. And, and so Gad comes to David and gives the word of the Lord, which is basically that he was not to remain in this stronghold, but to return to the land of Judah. Why? Why did God send this message through Gad? Well, I think, by the way, this is the very first, I think I mentioned this, the very first mention of this prophet, but it won't be the last, as we'll see here in a moment. God sent this message through Gad, firstly, so that David would not become estranged from his people. He's living in Moab. He's not in contact with his people anymore. We all have that little phrase, right? Out of sight, out of mind. So if, if David is gone and no longer present in Israel, they'll begin to forget about him. So God sends him back so he'll be there to constantly remind the people of who David was. But I think secondly and more importantly, David was too comfortable there in Moab. He was secure in Moab. He had a stronghold with 400 men in a foreign country where he's welcome, and basically Saul wouldn't be able to touch him there. So God says, I don't want you here. I want you there in Judah where you're vulnerable, where I will be your stronghold, not a crag in a foreign country. God throughout Scripture keeps telling us he is our stronghold. Does Gad remain with David? Well, we don't know, but we know eventually he's with David because if you go to 1 Chronicles in, in, in the 21st chapter, you discover he is called David's seer. David's prophet. And then later in the 29th chapter of 1 Chronicles, we discover that he is called one of the chroniclers of David's reign. And so if you read about David's reign as it's recorded in 2 Samuel or as it's recorded in 1 Chronicles, you, you will, certainly Gad was the author of 
the writer of some of that information. David is obedient to the word of the prophet. Notice how he contrasts with Saul. Samuel came and told Saul to do something. He does it half-baked or not at all and gets in trouble for it. David, Gad, did, Gad, did David even know Gad before? We don't know. Maybe he'd never even seen Gad before. But Gad comes to him. This is the word of the Lord. David said, okay, I'm going to do it. And so David leads his whole crew of 400 men down into Judah. And we're told that he goes to the forest of Hereth. Now, nobody can today say for sure where the forest of Hereth was, but it apparently was located right in this region in here. It's northwest of Hebron and southeast of Adullam, right about in there was apparently where it is. As you've heard many times before and, and seen if you've been or you go to Israel, there aren't very many forests. Uh, they're trying to rebuild. They're planting thousands and tens of thousands of trees all the time, trying to reforest the country. But if you, would to, if you would have traveled to Israel in the year 1900, you would have been in almost a totally barren land, a land devoid of almost all trees. Since the nation of Israel was founded in 1948, they've had a program of trying to replant and reforest the country because that's the only way you're going to build up water levels in your ground and secure your soil and all the rest of it. And there are some beautiful places of forest today in Israel, but at this time there were lots of forests. There were forests in the hill country of Judah. There were forests in the hill country of Ephraim. In fact, David's son later on, Absalom, will get his hair hung up in trees. You have a hard time getting your hair hung up in trees over there today. Did David take his family with him from Moab when he went uh, back to Judah? I don't think so because nothing has changed in the condition with Saul. Uh, Saul is still out to get him, so I think he probably will leave his parents in Moab for the duration. So what does it mean there in the, in the fourth verse where it says that his parents would be there as long as David was in the stronghold? I think we have to interpret the word stronghold as not referring to a specific place but a condition. A condition of, of David's being pursued by Saul and constantly finding a hiding place somewhere whether it be in the cave of Adullam, a crag in Moab, the, the wilderness of Engedi, or the forest of Hareth, wherever David was, that was his stronghold. And so he was always in the stronghold until Saul finally is killed. And then he is free and no longer pursued. And then his parents could leave Moab. I believe that's probably the way we need to understand that verse. Most poignantly of all, David became keenly aware, I think, as a result of Gad's proclamation and of his obedience to Gad's message, that the only impregnable fortress stronghold was Yahweh himself. Using the same Hebrew word for stronghold that we find in this particular chapter, David wrote in Psalm 31, verse 2, Incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly, be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. You'll find often in the Psalms, stronghold and rock are juxtaposed. And that's because the word stronghold almost always means a mountaintop fortress or crag. And when he says rock, that's a, that's, that's, you know, a, a synonym in effect. 
in his other references to the word stronghold, if you go through several of David's Psalms, you'll find stronghold shows up many times. In almost all those other instances, he uses a different Hebrew word, but one that has essentially the same meaning, and that is mountain fortress. When we feel threatened, when we feel attacked by or in our circumstances, whether it be from a, a situation at work or a situation within our family or even a, a situation within the church, when we feel as if the enemy is upon us, I think we can relate to David's concepts of stronghold as he saw them himself. Let me read a couple of verses from the 59th Psalm. Psalm 59, at the end of the psalm, verses 16 and 17, we read these words. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold, my fortress, my mighty tower, and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. Powerful message that David would learn and a message that would serve him throughout his 40-year reign over Israel that would come, of course, and we study that in the, second, in the book of 2 uh, uh, Samuel. Reading on at verse 6 in 1 Samuel chapter 22. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. The first sentence of this particular passage gives us the reason for the meeting that is described I think, you know, you can, as you read that passage, you can almost get a feeling that Saul just was hanging out and some of his guys were hanging out with him on some hill. Uh, we're looking at a formal meeting here. Uh, this is not just an accidental one afternoon, didn't know what else to do. They were sitting on a hill. Someone had brought word to Saul concerning the whereabouts of David, probably saying, well, David is, we, we, we don't know the, the time frame exactly here. David is, is over in Moab, or, or David is in the forest of Hereth, but we don't know exactly where, but we know he's over there somewhere. And so Saul assembles his council. When the word servants is used, we cannot understand this word as, you know, the guy who comes and, and polishes your shoes or serves your lunch or something like that, a butler or something. We're talking about his counselors, the commanders of his army, the, the leading uh, men of the royal uh, government under Saul. We're looking at a hilltop that was either inside the walls of Gibeah or immediately outside the walls of Gibeah. Gibeah was a pretty small town, so I, I have a feeling it was just outside the walls 
of Gibeah, where it would be better anyway to be outside the walls uh, having this particular meeting. And, and it says in the passage that they were under the tamarisk on the height. Now, generally speaking, when the, when the possessive is used there, or, or the, the definite article is used there, the tamarisk and the height, it, it's referring to one that everybody would know about, not just a tree on a hill someplace, but under this particular tamarisk tree on this particular hill so that everybody understood, oh, that's where the king holds his royal council. That's where he has his royal councilor meetings. So everybody would understand that that's the official meeting place. There was no palace. There was no royal palace built, so there's no place where Saul could meet with his counselors and have enough room for them all and have security where, where everybody and his brother wasn't hearing what was going on. And so an outdoor meeting on a hilltop where his men were all there and it could be seen who was nearby would be the most secure place for him to hold his meeting with his counselors. Notice we're told that, David, uh, that, that Saul is sitting there with his spear. Now, how many times have we heard that? He's always sitting there with his spear. <laughs> uh, and we know what he did with his spear, don't we? Most kings throughout history have held a scepter, uh, a symbol of their power. Uh, when you get to the story of Esther, the king, uh, the, um, the emperor of the Persian Empire, holds this uh, golden rod with a golden orb on top, which he would use to reach out and, and touch her, in effect, give him uh, give her his permission to, to present her petition to him. So it was the symbol of power. Well, you know, Saul hasn't been king long enough to have anything that fancy. Uh, besides, he has use for his spear. <laughs> he can throw it at somebody when he gets upset at him. And, and so since that had happened several times, you could imagine what his counselors would say to him. They would say to him what he wanted to hear. Because they didn't want to get thrown, a spear thrown at them because they might not be as quick as David and Jonathan as nimble at dodging uh, the spear that Saul threw. These counselors are very uneasy because Saul is chastising them for not informing him concerning his son's covenant with David. Now, where's Saul been all along? Well, he's been off in his funks, you know. He's been having his attacks by the evil spirit. He's been depressed. He's, he's been anything but paying attention to what's been going on. And so he finally discovers this somehow, and he accuses his counselors of never informing him of the existence of this covenant. And they were particularly disturbed, however, when Saul's paranoia manifested itself in his groundless accusation that they didn't care enough to inform him that Jonathan was stirring up David to ambush him, which, of course, was total baloney. I mean, it was all untrue. Jonathan was not stirring up David to do anything because Jonathan loved David and Jonathan loved his father. And David was not about to ambush Saul at all because he respected Saul as being God's anointed. But this is the feeling. This is, this is a manifestation of his paranoia. You know, when you're totally paranoid, everybody's out to get you, uh, even if they aren't. That's, you know, that's what happened to Herod the Great before he died. That's what happened to uh, the Roman emperor Caligula. Caligula thought everybody was out to get him, and so he was constantly having people assassinated to uh, protect himself until he murdered himself and gave everybody great relief. <laughs> David was hiding to escape Saul's persecution, not to lay an ambush for Saul. But Saul wouldn't hear of it. Anybody, if they tried to explain that to him, he, of course, would accuse them. 
And, and so he, he, he says to his counselors, you guys have not bothered to tell me all these things. You guys don't love me enough to, to try to protect me. And yet, who would give you the lands that you had have? Who has given you the wealth that you have? Would David do that? No, if David becomes king, you're going to lose it all. So you guys better listen up and serve me well. It seems that, John, uh, that Saul has surrounded himself with fellow Benjamites. Remember, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And so apparently most of his counselors were also members of the tribe of Benjamin, probably from his own clan. We would call that in our society nepotism, where you use your power to hire your relatives to positions of power. That's basically illegal, or at least immoral. But in this particular day, it seems to have been Saul's way simply because the nation was not really unified yet. It was still uh, broken into tribes. And most of the country didn't really recognize Saul as the unifying king of the whole nation. And so he drew from the people who were close at hand. There really is no capital of the country yet. There really is no royal palace yet. And, and so he surrounds himself with people who he feels he can trust and who, are, who live nearby and, and can quickly assemble when it comes time to hold a royal, the royal council. Part of the reason for all of this is that throughout Saul's reign, and we need to remember this, there is no royal capital. Gibeah is sort of a, uh, a transitory, uh, momentary capital simply because that's de, uh, Saul's hometown. But it's not really the capital of the country. The people who lived in Dan and Beersheba didn't look at Gibeah as the capital of Israel. There is no royal palace, which had he built a royal palace, might have given Gibeah at least some claim to uh, leadership. There's very little lo royal largesse available yet. He's, he's not able to, f to tax the whole country as, as he would like. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of money to distribute. He, he had limited amounts available. And there was no national administration. He didn't have a governor in every corner of the land. So his fellow clan members were his advisors and his courtiers. This would change when David would become king because David would not make Bethlehem his whole town, its capital. He would not even make Hebron, which would be uh, his capital for uh, the first few years when he was only the head of the uh, tribes of uh, Benjamin, uh, I'm sorry, of Judah and Simeon. But he would capture a city. Will you see the red, the red circle there? That was not part of Saul's kingdom. Jerusalem didn't belong to Saul's kingdom. It was still held by the Jebusites. David would capture the city, proclaim it the city of David, the city of the beloved one, and, and make it a capital. So people could, could say, oh, well, that, that's a good place to have a capital. It's, it's kind of central, a little bit south, but kind of central. And it doesn't have a tradition of being an Israelite city, and so others couldn't be jealous about it. And then, of course, David would draw his mighty men from all over the country, not just one tribe. After Saul voiced his accusations against his advisors, the first one to respond was a non-Benjamite. In fact, he was a non-Israelite. He was Doag, the Edomite. And of course, Edom, remember, is way down here. It's even further away from Israel than Moab. It was as pagan and foreign to Israel as was Moab. Edomites, of course, were also related to the Israelites because they're descendants of Esau as Moab was the descendant, uh, or descendant of Lot. And so you have this connection, but they hated Israel. So what is he doing here? He's been hired by Saul as the chief shepherd, which, of course, was more than just being, you know, head sheep catcher. 
he was held a significant political position there. He sees this as an opportunity to ingratiate himself with the king and maybe to get advancement over some of the Benjamites. And so he squeals. He says that while he was at Nob, he saw Ahimelech the priest. Seek the Lord on David's behalf. Give him provisions and give him the sword of Goliath. Whoa, did that light up Saul's eyes. Here he's actually found some genuine traitors, at least in his mind. And Doag is the one by which he gets the information. I don't get it from any Benjamites, but here's this foreigner and he gives me the information I need to know. This, of course, is not going to help catch David because this is long past, but it will give to Saul an opportunity to vent his anger, unfortunately, at the priests. And it would also give him an opportunity to show all what he does to people whom he feels are traitors to his cause. Even priests would not be immune to Saul's wrath. Therefore, who else would be? Powerful message. Powerful message. Well, we'll pick up at the 11th verse of chapter 22 next week.